0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Today we are speaking with Meg Medina, Pura Belpré winner and author of Burn, Baby Burn, Mango, Abuela, and Me. Uh, Tia
1: Izzo Wants a Car, and Yaqui Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass.
0: And the forthcoming book,
1: Mercy Suarez Changes Gears.
2: Many years ago, like, it's, we're actually in our eighth year now. We started this thing called um, Girls of Summer. My friend Gigi Amato and I, she's a, she publishes with Candlewick also. And so it's 18 books for strong girls. It's a whole other story that we could talk about. but. Um, we just, our daughters were getting ready to graduate and we said, Oh, I bet, you know how books really helped us raise them. I bet we could pick 18 books that really ha- speak to the girl experience. And that year we just like threw it up on a blog. And now eight years later, it's like, it's a blog. It's a party at the library. <laughs> it's all these authors who come and we love it, but it does, it gets unwieldy. You know, yeah. after a while. That that is the hard part. Then then it's like, Oh, wait, we actually <laughs> Every year. We
1: did the thing. So, uh, we're still yeah, doing the thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's it's hard. It's like you love it, and then it's like, but what have I got myself into? So, <laughs> I, I know that feeling. It could be our
1: secret, but I know that
0: feeling. <laughs> yeah, I'm we're like, like let's review all these books. How many are there? Four hundred and eight. Oh. oh, good thing we're
1: kind of not too old. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: know. I know. I know. And they this,
2: if, Am I right to think that they have to read? All of them. The The Newberry Committee has to, in some way, evaluate all of them. I
1: think that they divide it up a little bit, like a little bit of the workload. Um, sure. As far as, but like, But all you know, of nominating. the books have
2: to get yes. assessed in some way. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh. I think when, well, I think once they get it <laughs> to— <sends> chill. <laughs> I think once they shorten the long list at all, though, they do have to read all
1: yeah. of them. But I don't know how yeah. long the short list would be because mm-hmm. it's I mean, you know you probably know this already. It's like a papal enclave. <laughs> you I mean you know things but you don't really know what they're doing in there. In no, that you never can tell.
2: <laughs> I sat on the National Book Award um committee mm-hmm. last year. Um I chaired that and that was, that's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. a forever secret, you know, how yes. every committee does it and all of that. But the only thing we can say is that you know we get this enormous number of books, and in some way they do all have to get assessed in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's oh, that was a job. That was really a job. But I I remember thinking that Newberry had it worse. Than <laughs> we did in some way because they it would just seemed like
0: harder. But does I that know. does that go through the whole year the way that the Newberry does? Like do you end up with like a basement of books that you're just reading every day?
2: Yeah. So here's how it really looks like. In theoretically, you're named to the committee. Like in March, they announce it, and the cutoff. And you can start receiving books as soon as publishers start submitting them, right? Mm -hmm. So you get this trickle in the beginning, and you think, oh, this going to be okay right every couple of days a box of books comes you separate it you find a nice corner and then it's like that old episode of lucy and ethel <laughs> and the chocolate factory <laughs> then right the the deadline comes in june and all the publishers start sending you their stuff at once and it's like multiple deliveries of boxes of books every day and you have to have a long list by september Wow! and so you only have this really short amount of time, and it took, and my my son doesn't live here anymore, he's in his 20s, he lives in D.C. now, and I took over his bedroom, <laughs> and it was the entire bedroom, like it was a labyrinth, <laughs> the whole bedroom was all of these books, and so I, who adore books more than anything, who can't part with them, who, you know, I just, I, 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 I don't even know how to express how I love books, I I started to be nauseated <laughs> every time
0: I walked into that room. It was like, oh, I
2: can't do it. I can't do it. So it was crazy. But but what a wonderful experience, though. It was. I, I'm so glad I did it, and I'm so glad it's over, and that I will never do it again. <laughs> That's the best way I could
1: describe. So it. you, I was part of the Amelia Bloomer Project for several years, oh, and um, I love that I, list. <laughs> and I know you were on the list. You've been yeah. on the list for Tia Isa and for Burn Baby Burn. Um, and mm-hmm. I had a very similar experience to what you're describing. It was not the same number um, because, you know, the focus, I think publishers tend to tended to send us anything that was pink or a girl yeah. on the cover, yeah, but like yeah, anything yeah, right, else, right, right. you know, we'd have to try to find it on our own. Um, oh. But yeah, I, it was the first time I ever had like stacks and stacks and stacks of books and I would yeah. look at them and think, I don't like you. <laughs> right, right.
2: I know. It's like... a horrible thing. You're horrible it's horrible. And the other thing is like how much you can love a book at one stage mm-hmm. and want it on the early lists and then as it gets harder and harder, as you know, mm-hmm. picking the final list. I don't know how many end up on the bloomer list like there's a top 10 I think right yeah there's definitely a a big big list
1: but then there's no Um, quota so it could be anywhere from 83 to I think one year we had like 100 and 100 something
2: yeah yeah so you know we it it, it was hard to pare it down because we had to pare it all down to 10 Mm -hmm. and then to five and then to the winner and so like just that whole you know just that whole process of rethinking a book that you adore at one stage and then you, you find yourself advocating heavily against it for another stage. It's just <laughs> a strange, strange
1: space. And you can be talked out of the things you loved about it, and then it becomes yep. this thing where you're like, oh, I can't believe yep. I nominated that one.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or, you, or you're thumping yourself on the head. How did I not see this?
1: Mm-hmm. Or how yeah. did I
2: not see this problem? Or how did I not, you know, it, it's, it's such a learning experience. And mm-hmm. and the process of working with others intimately in that way. Um, mm-hmm. And some people do it better than others, you know. So that there's that component, too. So, oh, so much. <laughs> We could, do tu- we could do a whole, we could do a whole We could, could just <laughs> talk this. about that like for like a couple going hours. Going behind the curtain, except we
1: can't <laughs> tell you anything. <laughs> well, the Bloomer's completely open, so I can just say all sorts of secrets. But um, I think the thing that, that heartened me the most was that for the most part, even when people handled the workload differently and um, handled the discussion differently, we were for the most part able to keep it just about the book and never about yeah. the writer yeah. or You know, anything, any of those kind of tertiary things that can come along with a book.
2: So sometimes earlier in my career, like a book would come out and, you know, you have to go to school visits and you have to talk to librarian groups and so on. So you have this presentation, right, like this stuff, this set of things that you say about that book but if you know i i would only have like one or maybe two presentations that i would make around any title and oh my goodness after a while you're tired of hearing yourself say those things. So <laughs> this time, <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm going to make four or five, <laughs> like five ways that I could talk about this book for different people. If I'm talking to parents, if I'm talking to teachers and librarians, if I'm talking to a whole school, if I'm talking to a group of writers. If I- So I just thought of all the possible ways people who would be audiences for this, and I created presentations that would be... I'm in the process of making presentations that are, like, really different for each one of those groups. It's kind of fun, actually, to think about Mercy Suarez in that way, you know, and all the layers of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I'm hoping it will uh, you know, keep it fresh for me as I'm, I'm talking about it. So.
0: Now, is that the same main character as from the story in Flying Lessons? Yes. So, I... I did use the same character, and when I finished
2: writing that story, um, the EA, who was editor, said to me, I think you're not finished with these characters, and I, you know, I laughed it off. I said, oh, maybe not, you know, I don't know, but as it happens, I was under contract with Candlewick for, um, I had signed a two-book deal with them for middle grade and a YA, and I decided I had originally thought I would start on the YA first, but I said, I wonder what would happen if I pursued this as, um, as a novel. And I had done the same thing with Yaki, the other ones to kick your ass. That started as a short story that never came into the light of day. The anthology that it was scheduled for got orphaned and it never came out. And then I, I turned it into a novel that that Candleway box. But this was, you know, this actually was in existence. And so when I wrote Silk Painting, I had been thinking about my friend, um, uh, John Barra, the um, illustrator. And we had gone to a conference together. It was the National Latino Children's Conference. And we were talking about, you know, all kinds of things. And and one of the things he said was that when he went in the summers when he was a young man and he worked with his dad, um, I think it was a, either a painting company or yard company. I don't remember um, and he said, um, that people would, he was in college, he was this, you know, wonderfully talented guy. And then when he was in his work clothes with his dad, he suddenly became invisible or people would talk to him in a loud, slow voice to make sure he understood what they were saying and, oh, and no. things like that. And we had lots of conversation about that because it's a very common experience, you know, mm-hmm. um, when, if, if uh, I certainly remember it from from my my youth. So, um, when I was writing Soul Painting, I was really thinking about economic class and what that looks like for, like, say, a kid who's a tuition scholarship child in a in a really affluent school, regardless of how culturally integrated the school is. There's still the economic dynamic, which is sometimes even harder to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also thinking about this dead body, because when I was a kid, my friend Raquel and I used to play behind her building um, and raquel is is r j palacio the um, the author of Wonder. We lived oh, wow. down the street from each other. yeah, it was great fun, and she was you know a terrific playmate, but there was this one time where this old guy in her building died. And we're outside playing and suddenly the ambulances are there and the police and they shoo us away and we naturally go to the back of the building and peek in the window. <laughs> and sure enough, this this older man had passed away. So I open that story with that scene of this, you know, old man has, has died and Mercy's father um, is picking her up because they're going to spend the day painting the gym at her New school, and he says, Hey, mate, do you think they need a job in that apartment <laughs> yeah. when that person you know removed? And she's like, I'm not going. So, I sort of create this, this family, right? So, after that short story finish, and I was moving into writing the novel, like that's not enough. Questions of economic class and a dead body aren't enough to hold a whole novel, right? right? So, you have to sort of think wider like who else does she live with and who are these kids in her school and who was that person who died and you know you just keep expanding it and expanding it and so as I was doing that um, I was starting to think a lot about older relatives and older people and older people near the end of their lives and the the hard things that, that they see and sometimes the hard things that their grandchildren help them see, you know, or are with them when they when they have to walk down hard hard things. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about my at that time, and and still happening now. I have you know my my mom at the time was was living. She was in the end stages of cancer. My mother in law lived with us. She was in her 90s, and my aunt the Aisa. Uftia Isa also lived with us, and they were all ill, right? They all had different levels of need. And I had three teenagers living at home. So our house <laughs> was this uh, really complicated intergenerational setup. And I would love to tell you that that went smoothly, <laughs> um, but, but I can't. I have to say that... Um, Living in intergenerational families is very much a Latino format, like our grandparents live with us or down the street, like we're, they're very, very involved. But this, of all three of the ladies and their illnesses and teenagers all at once in this house, was really, really hard for everybody. So when I was writing Mercy, I decided to really look at what it's like to be 11 and 12, and you're body's changing and your friends are changing and your relationship with boys is changing and not at the same rate some girls are very romantically inclined early and some are still playing kickball so that whole thing is spinning at school and the you know the dynamics of being in this private school but I also wanted to give her a really difficult change going on at home and so I drew a grandfather who was um, uh, very close to her and also in the end stages of an illness. Um,
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And she finds that out over the course of the book. And it's really about, I don't know, I guess when we're 11, how is it that we um, can weather those really hard things because it doesn't stop right the hard things at school stop and the hard the, the hard things at, at school don't stop and the hard things at home don't stop mm-hmm. um and then sometimes they're side by side you, you have this terrific funny day at school and this horrible day at home or you know the inverse happens it's just the craziness of of the world of of upper elementary school and beginning of middle school so that's Mercy. That's how it, it's, it went from story sort of to novel. But I'm really happy with both things, which is kind of fun to say. I'm really <laughs> satisfied with what the story was, and I'm also really satisfied with um, what Mercy
1: came to in, in the novel. Aside from all of your books having very strong women, very complicated characters, um, just amazing, amazingly developed um, characters, there's always, it, it, they always seem to be in New York in the summer. Yeah. And that is some of the hottest Days I've ever spent my whole life, and I grew up in the American South. Like I've been in this American Southeast my pretty much my whole life. We've
0: got nothing on it's New York. It's the cement summer. and the brick. It's yeah, just
1: horrible. It's, it's like a and nightmare. the smell, <laughs> the
2: smell of New York is just mm-hmm. you can't get past it as it happens mercy um suarez happens in florida which is even hotter (laughs) yes even worse but there are palm trees but it is
0: really hot and that's where i'm from (laughs) oh really where are you from orlando and then over on the gulf coast a little bit yes i lived in west palm beach for a while we lived there for 10 years in fact all of our children my three children were born in
2: uh south florida so it was it was different for me. I like when I write books for kids, I always default to Queens because my childhood is set there so personally. And so I naturally go to that rhythm. But for this one, because the story was set in Florida, I I had to do that next step to get it set with something that I did experience but not as a child. So that was that was a little f- Less comfortable than writing about Queens, but I, I was glad to write about South Florida also and be able to give those horrible red ants their due. Oh my and, God, you know, those, <laughs> the ants—they're horrible. There
0: are nobody can understand that unless yeah, they, they live were with those creatures.
1: What do you? I mean, like, were they the size of Mike and Ike's, or what no, was the they deal? They were not
0: that big, but like you would, you would look down at your foot and all of a sudden realize that it looked like you were wearing black socks. No. And, yeah. and they wouldn't yes. have, they wouldn't oh. bite at first and then it was too late. No. Yeah. And yeah, the only no, thing that they got them the on you, you're done. You've been informed. <laughs> yeah, it's like a horror movie, basically. That's it's a horror movie. You would run for the nearest pool and like leap in fully clothed to That's get horrifying. them horrifying.
2: <laughs> it is horrifying. Yeah. And, and it, they leave these nasty pustules on you. So I, oh, I have that. No. Remember sea lice? That yes. no northerner ever knows. Every <laughs> time we watch tourists come in February to swim in the ocean, I was like, "You poor, poor people!" Yeah, but like, like northern nights, that... when you get to your hotel room, <laughs> you will be covered in jellyfish larva
1: bites. <laughs> so in northern <laughs> is anything above Florida, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you mean jellyfish larva? So they are these.
2: Well, nobody knows exactly what they are, but but when I lived in Florida, it was supposed that it was tiny little jellyfish, little larvae, and they burrow in in your skin, like they get under your bathing suit, and they'll burrow into your skin, and then they sting you. And so picture like gigantic sort of poison ivy um, reactions all over your skin. And so, you know, kids come back with... You know, they're covered in calamine lotion. They're taking, you know, steroids. <laughs> to and it, all and it's not just to in it the under. water. <laughs> like you get, it's like, in the water. You don't see them. You yeah. don't see them. You're having a great swim all day long. It's hours later that you will pay.
0: And then yep. even if you're walking around not in the water, then like the Spanish moss has chiggers in it. Which we called. I'm never bugs. going to Florida ever again. <laughs> Everything is out to get you. It's like Australia Junior.
1: If I am, if I ever have to go there again, I'm going to cover myself in some kind of like Tyvek, Tyvek clothing. Uh,
2: I know, and yet I do have beautiful memories of Florida. Also, <laughs> I have memories it's of true. walking out on my driveway barefoot and my kids drawing chalk pictures as long as far as the eye could see, and uh, you know eating outside like there were all these wonderful things about it
1: but but
2: (laughs) certainly jellyfish by the sea life and
0: and fire ants no not so much
1: (laughs) and now there have been a lot more sinkholes there too never going
0: (laughs) I had I had a wonderful childhood and (laughs) I will never go back (laughs) Florida
1: tourism council I have ruined this state (laughs) just for me there's plenty of other people who are totally into it it's just yep. me and my very, very um, easily burned skin, so I don't need to be outside anyway.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. All right. All right. Well. I'll give you a pass then. Well, you know, we've been talking to a lot of Newberry authors, and we like to ask them, like, what was it like when you got the call and what was the ceremony like? But we haven't actually talked to any Belpré winners before. so. Yes.
2: So my dream, all right, so here's what I think about the Pura Vectre Award. I think this, that of, I don't know if I'll ever get another award in my whole life. Nobody ever knows, right? You write your books and you hope for the best and that's that. But if I don't get another one, I can die a happy, happy woman because that award is so meaningful to me. It feels like this is the award that really represents the language and the experience of my family, of my people, of my roots, where I'm from, I, I love that. And Pura and Brepere as a librarian, right? She was the first Afro-Latina mm-hmm. librarian, in, in um, of course, in uh, New York City Public Library. Mm-hmm. She, I think it's called sankufu, something like that. It's an, an African phrase that means searching for what was. So that you know who you are. And that's such a beautiful, I think, description of what it is to win the Buddha Belpre Award because it's about touching base with all of the stories that your parents told you, the, the things, the way you see the world through your roots and so on, and writing it for the current generation of kids the past and the future sort of meets there. So that just felt really wonderful to me. And I was just shocked. I mean, especially for Yaqui Delgado, because, you know, I wasn't so sure that the title was going to <laughs> not scare people away. And Pura Belpre usually has, um, you know, uh, they often, they cap it at books for 14 year olds. So Yaqui was right there at the you know, the upper end of that. So I just wasn't sure. And then when I received the honor for Mango, that was just a joy also to, um, and I got to receive it also with the illustrator, Angela Dominguez, who is lovely. And it was just terrific to be sitting there with her. She was there with her mom and her brother and her niece and nephew. And I was there with Javier, of course, and just to, um, share that moment and the ceremony is feels very much like a family gathering um of of all of our elders like the women and the the librarians and the authors who have been who were the people who established this award who had the vision to do it in the beginning and to and who have worked so tirelessly through the forma and other places to get this award um you know, more robust, more people submitting work and, and uh, more varied work. And I think now they absolutely have to have that. I, I look at all the new. I'm just so impressed. It was the 20th anniversary, which was a couple of years ago, and that was just beautiful. They came to the front of the um, stage and they did a calling out of all of the names of the authors and special people associated with Pura Belpre who have passed away.
0: Hmm. since
2: the, And we faced the North, we faced the South, we faced the East, we faced the West, and we called out their names. It was really, it was beautiful. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that in children's, publishing, we think of the Newbery and the Caldecott as the, 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 the big, big, big awards. And they are, and they're, they, you know, what can I say about that? They are the gigantic awards, but there's just so much meaning to, to the awards that are more specific, like the, the Coretta Scott King, the Pura Belpre, all of those, because it's to a specific mission inside of you a specific identity inside of you um and it feels so nice to be um honored in that way and it also feels to me like sort of a responsibility like when when you do receive this honor like what are you going to do with it like you get a beautiful little plaque right and you get your medal and and it's sitting in my living room and you know in this glass cabinet and i'm so proud of it but if that can't be it Right? That can't be what you do with it just collect it and be happy. So you collect it, you get happy and then to my mind, you figure out what what was the purpose of me getting this and what do I do with this now um, And that's how I've sort of moved through it It's you know it's a process of you know continually talking about um, talking up new authors and introducing new authors and connecting people like who don't know each other, who need to know each other, this illustrator, that author, that editor, this publicist, Like <laughs> just getting the family, you know what I'm saying, just mm-hmm. getting people rowing in the same direction. Um, and that is the exhausting work sometimes and also the most rewarding work, Um when you do see these relationships happen and stronger work emerge and just more, more people um, being recognized and invited to speak and, and so on like it. This year at NCTE there's going to be, uh, you know, lots of roundtables and lots of panels led by Latino authors. But there's one that's um, organized by Nancy Mercado, and it's, it's like a gigantic – I can't even tell you how many Latino authors will be manning the different um, roundtables on all kinds of topics within um, our, our literature. That's going to be really fun.
0: I, I've mostly, of your work, I've mostly read Burn, Baby, Burn, which of course is about a a serial killer spree I had a totally different expectation you just sound so nice and fun
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know here's the crazy part right isn't that something I sometimes I say to myself I used to say this to Kate my editor all the time I just want to be funny I want to be I want to write one really funny life (laughs) book someday you know like and I do and I I think I can be funny, but in books like Burn, Baby, Burn, of course, darkly funny, right? Like There's just moments that you have to laugh because it's just so grim. Um, But, you know, within every person, right, within every person, there's all of that. I remember once, years ago, I was reading uh, an editorial. It was um, Garrison Kyler, Kyler, right? And he was talking about, um, and of course he writes all of those sort of light, you know funny things but he was saying that he turned to writing the year that his cousin drowned in a lake and his mom to help him and herself maybe get over the horrible rage the, the fear and the, the the just the feeling of powerlessness um signed him up for swim classes, I think, at the YMCA. And he would go dutifully, and he'd sit shivering on the edge of the pool. And um, he eventually stopped going and then started to go to the library instead. And he decided, he said at some point, that he would play his pain for laughs. So I think sometimes we do these really interesting inversions of our personality in our writing. Um, I do like to laugh. I do, um, I do feel like a hopeful person. Um, and so when I, uh, when I write books like Yaqui Delgado or when I'm writing Burn, Baby, Burn, I'm sinking back into really sad moments or memories and difficult things. Um, but hope I'm always hopeful i'm always I'm always hopeful that I'm hopeful in this book <laughs> that it ends with some feeling of forward motion that that there is going to be some imperfect solution but something is coming to relieve her but um yeah I don't know I don't know how that works i I, I go back and forth from very sad sort of things um, but mercy I think is probably the lightest and
0: the funniest of the books that I have, even
2: though I just described you this really sad.
0: <laughs> the, well, the, the short story it really came through that way, that she was like a really up up person in general, despite yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, and,
1: and yeah. Burn, Baby, Burn, I love the note that that ends on. And, and you saying relief, I think that yeah. that rings so true to me that, you know, And a lot of, and most of your characters, I feel like it's about them getting their freedom, about realizing that they're, that they are allowed to be free and figuring that out. And the last scene of Burn Baby Burn really hits that home to me.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, that was, that was an exhausting book to write. It was, it, it was, um, but it was a catharsis. I mean, mm-hmm. I was fourteen that summer in New
1: York, so I do remember. With the blackout some of the and with the summer of Sam, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I was still in New York that summer, so it was just a horrific summer. It was just awful. But um, you know, I had to, I had to connect with a lot of really difficult things when you're writing about a really violent family a family that is coming undone, it, it's its footing, it, it, it's, it's all off, like the power balance is off, no one's in charge, and we have families like that. Kids are in families like that, and there's just so much shame associated with it. So to write that, honestly, you have to go into these really, really heavy, heavy places. But invariably, after I'd finished writing one of those really, really hard scenes, I'd feel better Mm
0: -hmm. like
2: the scene where there's one where I, and it wasn't in the original novel, the manuscript that I gave Kate, but she came back to me and she said, you know, this dad, you know, with all his excuses and all of his sunny fake sunniness, she never really calls him out on it. Doesn't she want to, which is always how Kate, edits me. She never tells me what to do. She just asks me annoying questions, <laughs> and then I have to go away and fret about it for a while. It's like, yeah,
0: maybe she should, you know,
2: like until I get nice and mad, right? And then I came back to it, and I just let him have it, you know, as as Nora, um, what she had to say to him. And that just felt really liberate. It just felt so good f- to me for her, you
1: know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Yeah. yes,
2: Nora, say it, <laughs> um, and that's what we want for our daughters, I think, right, mm-hmm. their ability not to have to carry things, but to be able to trust their voice and their instinct and to say it, mm-hmm. no, you can't treat me like this, no, I'm not here for your, your benefit and to make you feel good,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yes, I do happen to have dreams of my own, and this is what I would like to do. So I, I want girls that way. I want mm. girls to have models of that and models of it f- f- based on girls who aren't necessarily like that in the beginning, who have mm. to fight their way to find that strength.
1: And they learn to not just swallow their words.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in my own life, my mom was so committed to me being nice. Right, ser fina, buena, you know, like all of these kinds of things. And so that's not a very healthy thing. I mean, we all want to be kind people and good people and just people. That's fair. But um, it isn't fair to make somebody feel like they have to do those things at the expense of their own um, self care and, mm-hmm. and well being. And that's the line we have to show people where that is. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have a favorite Newbery book? And since we've talked about um, Belpré, do you have a favorite Belpré book other than yours, your own?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, I will say that I... All right, the Belprés are always just so incredible to me. I, I would say, of all time, I loved... Julia Alvarez. Before we were free, mm-hmm. I think that got the Pura i I'm pretty
1: sure. I'm thinking content. we did.
2: Yeah, I love that book. That's just one of those. Um, just over a lifetime, mm-hmm. I, I love that book. And more recently, I was very fond of um, Under the Mesquite by um, uh, Guadalupe Garcia McCall. Mm-hmm. I love that. And for the Newberry, I have to say that every time, to- every year, I wait. I get up early and I sit in my pajamas with my coffee, and I, I, I just wait for them to announce who it is. And it's it, sometimes it's been a friend. I mean, when Matt de la Pena won, I I cried because it was so meaningful for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. We, um, it was it was this acknowledgement that he is a wonderful Latino author and he's a wonderful author, period, just across all, all, um, categories. So that felt very meaningful to me. I, it was really fun when Kwame Alexander won also, but you know, like who doesn't love Katie Camillo? I mean, there's just, they're all just wonderful. I just, the feeling I have when they announce the person almost always is I run out and get the book if I have not read it, right? <laughs> That's the first thing I do. I make I put my order in right away. And I I sit in awe of the book. I just read it and just think how exciting. I just it's so exciting for them, for the author, and just for kids and just I don't know, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, love the, I love the ceremony. I love all of that. And, and I will say that after having served on a committee, a book judging committee, I realize how, how difficult it is to be the winner, how sometimes it's a little arbitrary also, mm-hmm. right, because so little separates the winner from the non-winner, so mm-hmm. little. Um, and sometimes what separates it is the makeup of that committee that year. Right? It's 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 a diff it's just a, a mysterious alchemy. Um so I'm I'm very conscious of the winner but also who else was named, like who the uh, honor books mm-hmm. were. And I don't know. And the, and then the other thing I love is just perusing all the lists, the best of that those are really fun for me.
1: Those are I feel good. like
2: I just give it gives me permission to like go on a big fat <laughs> shopping spree and and feel like I'm entitled.
1: It's research. <laughs>
0: (laughs) As a bookseller, (laughs) I have to encourage that. Exactly. Exactly. But we also like to ask the people that we interview if you happen to have a favorite drink. Oh, like an alcoholic drink or a general drink? Well, if you don't drink, drink, then uh, in general. But if you have an alcoholic drink that you like... We would love to have real. Else. I mean,
2: my standard, I'm so uninteresting in that area. I <laughs> always just have a Pinot Grigio, and that goes with everything. It says about as bland as you can get. But,
0: but delicious. I would
2: say that in life, I love coffee and I love un cafecito. I love Cuban coffee with just the right amount of milk, a little sweet. There's just nothing better. There's nothing better and it goes with well with every single one of my books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for thinking of me for the Newberry chart. I'm really excited to be on it.
1: Thank you so much. We love your work and uh, we can't wait to read Mercy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, okay. bye.
0: Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the Newberry Tart interview with Meg Medina. Mercy Suarez Changes Gears will be out on September 11th. Thanks for listening.
0: Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.